Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. I'm Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness and Blood, Sweat, and Tears and the History of college, Black College Football. Lou, welcome back, man. Welcome back. Episode two, season What's, two. Episode two, <laughs> season two. What's going on, man? Week three of the school. About to get into week uh, two of what NFL and... Uh, I survived their tornado. So, so hours before uh, we got on, we were in our basement waiting for a uh, tornado to come. So, sh- so, shout out to me for for surviving the tornado, basically doing nothing. I'm saying though, this is dedication. That's what I like to see to the to the craft, right? Podcasting, surviving tornadoes, and getting into work. I love it. Yeah, um, dedic- I'm dedicated like uh, Kobe Bryant's team. You know what I mean? So. You know. <laughs> Oh gosh, Kobe. Oh gosh. Okay. We won't uh, go there. And and but just real quick, now we're going there. I on that note, um, I am coaching like little girls, like first, second grade soccer. Um, and I'm I'm complete opposite of Kobe, but I do realize the the way to get the best out of them is just kind of preach aggressiveness and, and authenticity. Uh but I have fun win or lose or if the other team scores, like I, like I, I don't care. Right. Like sports is supposed to be fun. Um, but he seems like he's not having fun. So, um, uh, I hope he changes that. Yeah, no, I, it's that, um, Hey man, I'm proud of you for coaching your daughter's soccer teams, man. That's good, man. I, uh, I have not coached my boys, uh, in part cause I know my own competitiveness when it comes to soccer. Uh, and I still want my kids to like me a little bit. Um, but uh, my youngest is super competitive, so he might be the one uh, who who can who can take it a little bit. Get I gotta give him the Mamba book, I guess. What's the what's the the kindergarten first grade version of the Mamba book? I know. That's oh, I, I, don't, I, I I don't know. I think it's probably the same as the thirty year old, forty year old. Like I don't think Kobe knows like <laughs> there's a difference, right? And but but to be clear, I'm a like my wife was getting on me for yelling, and I'm like. I'm not yelling. I'm coaching, right? Because uh, <laughs> I get into it, and 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 part of my coaching is just like literally telling the girls where to be. So I, you know, I won't say their name on here, but you know, I see the play developing before they do. Like I see that. You know how it is with little kids soccer. It's mm-hmm. it's it's eight legs kicking out the same ball, and you see that ball about to squirt out. It's like okay, I got to get my defender ready. I got to get my goalie ready. <laughs> so let me tell them to move up and be ready. Um, and I think at one point after the game, the mom was like, wow, you certainly know all the girls' names. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You so, got to be yell- Don't be yelling at my daughter like that. That's what I that think was. that's what that they was, wanted. That was, that's cool. Tell your um, daughter to be ready. Yeah. Speaking of uh, hard parenting of uh, young athletes, we should give a shout out to probably the most successful uh, young athlete whose parents was too hard, Sarita Williams who um, won her 100th match in the U.S. Open, which is hard to fathom. Like, the thing, she won 100 times in one single tournament, um, but came up just short in her attempt to uh, catch Margaret Court's um, Grand Slam record. Um, did you watch that tennis match? 
Oh man. Oh gosh. I did not. Well, you know, I'm bad. I, I watched in and out. Um, I think I was busy doing something where, where I couldn't completely watch it, but I kept up on the score. Uh, and, and I'm like anybody else, whenever she plays, I'm, I'm into the results. Um, I don't always get a chance to watch. Um, I think that game was, um, actually butting up against something else. Um, not only butting up against something else on TV, uh, but I, but I think it was going against some some other thing I was doing, so I didn't get a chance to watch. But again, shout out shout out to Serena and and the thing I like about her and you mentioned her her father is that they changed the game right of how a lot of people approach this, whether it's Richard Williams or you know Tiger Woods' dad. Um, and I think black parents, I think this is fair to say that black parents get treated a little bit differently when it comes to their kids in sports. Right, they're always seen as very overbearing, um, mm-hmm. trying trying to make that that money out of them. Um, but all parents, look, I've been around youth sports for a long time. All parents do this. Um, I think part of that is for the parents' own ego. I also think yeah. the, part of, the other part of that is they, they prices of college is getting up and, and, and they think that uh, it's valuable to spend $200,000 on youth sports <laughs> than to save up for college. Um, yeah, but no. No, that logic yeah. is, no, no, you see that all the time. It's like, oh, I should spend $200,000 you know, for private training and extra camps and all this other stuff. So you could get a scholarship valued at $50,000. Like, you know, it's, the logic is not, is not always there, but, you know, as a, as a person who, who, who uh, played uh, high level soccer in college, um, you know, you can see how it works out if you give your attention, but I, you know, the reason parents coach hard, and I know this is, would be my weakness as well. So this is not be criticizing any anyone else, is that when you're when you're older, you know what you're supposed to do, right? But you just can't do it, right? 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 <laughs> and, and 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 you know, uh, it's like youth is wasted on the youth, right? And I think that's is is like always the mantra of the overbearing parent, right? It's like, man, if I had this young person's ability and and I could just give them what I know and with their ability, they will go further than I went. Um, um, and so I think it's always harder for parents to do that. Right. Right. And one other thing about Serena is like, uh, I gotta mention like just how she, she's changed the game in the sense of you get a lot more power players, right. Uh, more athleticism oh. in the game and also specifically the number of black women we see and girls we see playing the game at a, at a very high level. So, I mean, like what almost a mi- in between, wait, when we're in the middle of that tournament, there's that real possibility that there's, you know, there's four top notch black women playing in that tournament. Um, mm-hmm. And that was something incredible. And that's that Serena and Venus effect and, and Althea Gibson and Aura Washington, right. Um, yeah. These, going these all the way back. Women who, who paved the way. Um, and, and girls like Coco are going to pave the way for the next generation. Uh, just not my kids. Cause I can't afford tennis. Uh, but <laughs> next generation of kids who can afford that. Yeah, no, that's, that's an excellent point. I will say this about the match since you did see it. I think I, I will be so excited when Serena breaks this record or ties Margaret Court. Cause I think when she gets in the last couple of title games, she's been real tight. Mm. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I think for, for me, that's just, you know, sorry about it. She she just has been so tight in these matches that I cannot 
see her win, man. She came out sluggish and she looked tight and, and she was on her back foot, not the aggressive Serena that, you know, has won all these tournaments before. So I think she'll be relieved once she wins and then we'll see her win like three or four real more before the end of her career. Right, right, right. No, I, th- I think you're right. Like it's that, that, that lack of pressure. Once you get there, it's going to, you know, it's going to be on. Um, but let's talk a little bit about, let's change gears about the topic of today. And, and today we're talking about paying the players and black college uh, sports. And and I think that it is, uh, we have been gifted an opportunity to make this discussion in part because the illustrious writer, I'm not even going to give her a sports writer, writer, Jamil Hill, made a provocative article that we kind of teased last week about HBCUs arguing that uh, elite black athletes, blue chippers, as they used to say, right. um, uh, should go to HBCUs and help uh, benefit black colleges and rather than helping to benefit uh, predominantly white institutions, whether it's Alabama, Ohio State, et cetera. Uh, and as you can imagine, uh, Twitter was a fire <laughs> for like five straight days. Um, we had... Um, you know, people who do nothing about black colleges saying, um, you know, hey, you know, why should we self-segregate? Why should we, you know, why is she espousing segregation? Um, And I'm like, okay, that's crazy. You had conservatives chiming in as always. Um, On one hand, they they support and celebrate Donald Trump, um, his supposed support for HBCUs, but at the same time, her article was all backwards and wrong looking. Um, and then you had a bunch of advocates, uh, myself included, of HBCU sports, really trying to complicate uh, her assumption. And I think you made the point last week, uh, briefly on our show uh, and on Twitter, that you know the issue is still about our, should we pay the players, right? Right, like you know, paying the players is paramount. So trading one set of exploitative. Uh, relationships for another, whether they be HBCUs or PWIs, doesn't really get to the core issue of the problem. But I do think it brings up some other kinds of important issues, which are in my wheelhouse because I just wrote a book on the history of black college what? football. What? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I think that's, I think what what Hill was doing and and what Bill Roden did in the past, right? $40 million slaves. And, and shout out for him to having the greatest title for a book. Uh, right, <laughs> right, right. It's let's be clear. It's, it's greatest title of a book, right behind Blood, Sweat, and Tears, right behind I Fight for a Living, right behind uh, the Challenges of Blackness, and right behind We Will One Day, up there with those books. Uh, and Rodin does that in the chapter, and he uses the Fab Five, right, to to kind of talk about exactly this. Like, what if what if Chris Webber and the Fab Five went went to an HBCU. So what what you know Jamel Hill was doing was was is not new territory, but <clears throat> the spirit of that, like minus if we're not going to change the system, right? So we have to have this conversation now if we're not going to change the system, and then we'll talk about California and the system changing. But it's like mm-hmm. part of that is looking at these HBCUs and they're underfunded. And part of that is understanding this reality that, okay, you want them to go there, that money will go flowing to these places. But if you're an athlete, one reason why you don't go there is because money never really flowed to those places, right? And mm-hmm. there's a reason why money never flowed to those places. And, and on this podcast, we'll give you the, that history, like two parts of it. One, 
and you could talk about public funding and the other I'll, I'll talk about like TV dollars. Right. Um, so since this is your warehouse, why don't you go ahead, step up to the plate and, and knock this out for us? Okay, great. No, this is this is my wheelhouse. I think that you know, the key, I think the key point for us to remember is that you know, after World War II, um, college football begins to benefit uh, black and white college football benefits uh, public institutions. Um, so the big state schools that were already really good before World War II are really able to take off and really exacerbate their their dominance, in part because the GI Bill pours all kinds of new money, government money into these colleges. And so they grow massively. So at Ohio State, I think the um, the before World War II breaks out, the school population is probably around 18,000 after World War II. It will grow to by the 1960s. Uh, upwards of 50,000, right? So you have this massive amount of growth that um, in, 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 um, will benefit athletics as much as anything, as boosters and direct monies, et cetera. And for black colleges, that money just does not exist, right? So one of the things that we see and what we talk about is that, you know, black colleges are underfunded in so many different kinds of ways um, because separate was unequal. Right. And the states are really not really trying to pour any more money into this dual education system, at least until the NAACP starts making some legal challenges, and then you start to see them throw money in. But even when they do throw money in the best case scenario, and I talk about this in Blood, Sweat, and Tears, the best case scenario for this new money is Florida A&M, that the state uh, coming out of the Depression and uh, begins to create this, what is known as a racetrack allocation money, uh, which became known as the football fund for University of Florida, uh, Florida A&M and Florida State. And Florida State was co-ed until 1947 as, by, as, by, as a product of this post-World War II period. But this money, so there's a special two days of racetrack of gambling and all the proceeds go to uh, these universities. And at the end, instead of it being evenly divided, a third going to Florida A&M and a third going to Florida um, and then a third going to Florida State, the University of Florida gets about 65 percent. Florida State gets 25 percent, even though they had only been playing football for like five or six years. And FAMU ends up getting about 12 percent. Those numbers don't add up to 100, but you know what I mean. (laughs) <laughs> um, but what we see is that even though Florida A&M was the best football program in the state in 1955, it was the, it was poorly funded. And so you look at things, and I'll talk about this in the book, you look at things like stadium size. Well, Florida A&M Stadium held 10,000 people, uh, and the University of Florida's held 35,000 that could be expanded to 50,000. And so what what I liked about working through through looking at Florida's records vis-a-vis Florida A&M is that Florida State is literally 2 miles from from the Florida A&M campus. It was a co it was a women's college until after World War II. So there's no football athletics, there're no men really until the GI Bill. And then all of a sudden you see this new money and so Dope Campbell Stadium, which is a fantastic stadium if you've ever been there, is publicly funded and it's it's the initial funding is more than Florida ADM had ever gotten for a state. And so you see that even though you've had all these all this success, Jake Gaither had all this success that in the very opening moment, because it was black, it was already underfunded. And so we talk about like, you know, why is it that 
you know, these facilities are not in comparison when we're talking about this kind of deliberative, deliberative um, uh, structural racism uh, that really hinders and puts black colleges behind the eight ball. And this is when they have all a, a tremendous amount of athletic talent, <laughs> a tremendous amount of athletic talent, right? Like I believe like if we're just some stats, I, I believe these are correct. If I'm, if I'm reading some stats, I had jotted down uh, briefly that um, let's see the pro teams drafted 10 defenders from the 1966 Tennessee state squad. And the fame, and mm-hmm. I wrote down somewhere before, and the famed Gramley football team had produced 70 pro football players by 1969 and had 34 players in the pro league that year, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, like, just in the 60s, I mean, that's that's two teams that have a tremendous amount of talent, right, that had NFL talent there, but they're not reaping the benefits. Like, those schools don't reap the benefits of those public dollars. And so the point is, when integration happens – and and student athletes after a while, right? Where where you have this arms race, right? For for students, especially like ten, it's fair to say mm-hmm. like in the seventies to the eighties, where this real huge arms race starts. What do you have to give to that player that other other schools have that that got all that kind of money? Uh, those public schools got, or those schools that had huge boosters, um, you know, because they were the attractive schools. You don't have it. Um, the other thing too that that lends to the lack of dollars is how the NCA operated. Um, the NCA mm-hmm. in the night in 1951 established took this idea that they could take over TV contracts, right? Effectively becoming a monopoly, uh, which meant that individual schools <clears throat> couldn't sign their own TV contracts, right? And so the reason why they did that because if a bunch of schools signed their own TV contract, uh, then you would have a huge problem with viewership and people would cut off money. And so the NCA said, "Look, we're going to take this over. We'll limit the opportunities that people can see stuff on TV that will drive viewers and then we'll spread this money out." The problem is that these black schools weren't part of that spread this money out. And so when the NCA is creating <laughs> these TV contracts, and look, the big schools complain because they wanted more money, right? Like if you're Notre Dame, right. if you're Oklahoma, if you're Texas, you're the big draw, yet you're sharing the money. And that's going to have problems in the 1980s. But in the meantime, if you're a black school, the NCAA is not even messing with you. And so you're getting none mm. of that money, even though you have all this talent that people want to see. So <clears throat> there's this there's this chance in 1953, for example, as early as 1953, where there's a, a, telephone, a television station that wants to telecast 10 CIAA games, and the NCAA denied that, right? So this is what we're talking about, them not being able to get that money because the NCAA is acting as this TV monopoly. And in fact, a black college was not viewed on TV until 1971, right? Um, So you have this history of keeping black colleges out. And then in the late uh, 70s, you have uh, the renegotiated, right? The the TV contract, right? Which would essentially, Mm -hmm. what the TV contract did was that ABC said they're going to show five games featuring one double A teams, right? That means all Mm -hmm. one double A teams. And so you'll occasionally have black colleges in there uh, but that's only a few black colleges and that and that money has to be spread out. And then in the mid 80s, as we talked about, once those big schools got tired of sharing money with these little schools, they left. Right. And they started to form their own TV contracts. And once again, 
the black schools got left out. And and one of the uh, FAMU, the athletic director at FAMU in the mid-80s, Roosevelt Wilson, said, this CFA mm-hmm. thing is strictly a big boy on the black uh, a big boy on the black proposition. What they're looking to do is tie up all the TV money and keep it away from the smaller schools, right? This idea that <clears throat> once these big schools get in, they get the money, they get the TV contract, and those smaller black schools don't get the TV money, right? And without that TV money, you're not going to get be able to build up your facilities. And when you can't build up your facilities, you can't compete. If you're not on TV, you can't compete. And those players go elsewhere. And many of these black colleges that we know are faced with the decision, do you go D1, do you go D2, right? And once you decide to go D2, mm-hmm. you lose more talent. Or if you stay one A, what do you do to get money? You know, 20 years, 30 years later, you're playing these big schools like like we talked about last week, Howard versus uh, Merlin, right? Uh, well, what was that beat down again? 79 Ooh, to uh, nothing. 79 to nothing. But you have to take that just to stay afloat, right? And so mm-hmm. that's the problem that we have. On the one hand, as you mentioned, there's this lack of, of public funding, uh, this historical lack of public funding that leaves them nothing. And then on the other hand, there's the this history of the NCAA and TV contracts that leave them nothing. Right. And so you now we, you know, fast forward, whether you're doing Bill Road in the mid 90s um, or Jamel Hill in 2019, trying to talk about sending these players there. Um, you're still I mean, you're still would send them to a place that has no, no, no money there. Right. No, no structures there to build. They don't have the nine hundred thousand dollars strength and conditioning coach that Alabama has. Right. Um, mm-hmm. so you go there at a, at a disadvantage. Now, to be clear, I think at basketball, it would be a lot easier, right? Um, that's mm-hmm. why you probably don't need, you know, Zion wouldn't need that much, right? If he's going somewhere else, right? Uh, but in football, you do, you need a lot. You need all those things that those big schools have. Um, yeah. Right. No, and I think this is the, you know, one of the things I always say is that there's a difference between the material resources, right? They're at a material resource disadvantage, but they may be at a human resource advantage, Uh right? And I think that there's a sense that, that what Jamil Hill, I think, um, was working around, which I think was super smart. She talked, she met, she trotted out the stat about how black colleges only make up 3% of the education, you know, 3% of the colleges or whatnot. Um, but they produce, you know, 50% of the judges, 40% of, you know, all these white collar percentages, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that's an excellent point because what we see in, at, at HBCUs is a, a, a staff, and a a uh, you know faculty and staff and coaches pouring all this energy not just into individual players because they're stars but into this community of black uh, students mm. who will go out and broadly support the community right and so I'm going to shout out uh, one of my good friends Jelani Favors who has a new book called Shelter in the Time of Storm how black colleges. Uh, fostered generations of leadership and activism where he talks about the various ways in which um, black colleges created what he called a, he calls a second curriculum, right? That, um, that really uh, infuses this, this leadership development and activism, even though they lack material resources. Right. And I think that there's something to be said um, uh, for that, right? Cause we, you know, one of the chief complaints we say is that, 
uh, black athletes in particular going to these PWIs as athletes and not getting any education, right? So most famously for for, for our listeners, remember uh, Dexter right. Manley graduated from Oklahoma State. He couldn't write. And couldn't read or right. write, right? He was functionally right. illiterate, right? And with a degree, right? And there's a sense that, you know, I always say that, you know, there's not that I have not come across a case at black colleges, but I think that there's a sense that the community comes in and knows that this is unacceptable. Right. Right. <laughs> right. They wouldn't allow that to happen. No, <laughs> no, you're exactly right. And I think that's the the challenge we face at, at PWIs too. And, and, and <clears throat> real quick before I talk about these challenges, you don't see, look, if, if you're at Clemson, 70% of the football players are black or more 7% of the basketball or more are black. It doesn't match that with the faculty, right? Um, but 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 what what we <laughs> never. yeah ever ever what we get charged to do is probably seventy percent of that work, though, right? That as you mentioned at, at the HBCUs mm-hmm. at, at PWIs, we just call it retention, right? And I, and I always <laughs> exactly. always cringe at that word because sometimes retention means dollars and not necessarily that that TLC that students need, right? Um, mm-hmm. And but but we get you know, oh, do you want to be a mentor for someone else? And it's cool, right? But it's like when you go to these events, you're the only faculty member there. You know what I mean? Um, and so you take mm-hmm. on this kind of heavy burden. And then after a while, it's just like as a faculty member, it 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 wears on you, right? Because you, especially when you're young, you do, you go there, you show up, you show up, you show up, and you're the only one there showing up of the faculty member, right? And it's just like, man, I right. I want to be like these other faculty members, right? Where I could just have this. <laughs> You know, I could just concentrate on this, concentrate on this, but you know, I got to do this other stuff too. Um, and I think that's what you're pointing out at these HBCUs. You get that everywhere you go, um, and so I don't know what the retention level is, but it's probably not for the same reasons as you face at a, at, a, at a PWI. And so sometimes it it hurts a little bit when you see some of those schools from uh, Morris Brown, right? Uh, having to struggle mm-hmm. with, with with shutting down or something like that because you know what kind of the service work they do for for the community and for the students and so I do like you said I appreciate that when she, when she pointed that out that that idea that the great number of these doctors you know coming from these institutions these judges et cetera et cetera coming from these institutions both historically and now um, that's an important point but I think it's also an important point as we transition from here that as long as the system's in place, you're still just transferring exploitation, right? You're just putting a lot on these 18 or 19 year old kids because the state didn't do its thing. And because the NCAA discriminated, right? Because discrimination, we want these kids mm-hmm. to do that. But my point, and if you follow me on Twitter at Lumor 12 all the time is to what pay the players. And, and we're starting to see something come up where pair players might uh, get that opportunity to get paid. Yeah, no, I mean, so the for those who are not following, who listen to our podcast, but don't have not kept on the sports news because they are um, overwhelmed with the NFL and uh, and Antonio Brown and uh, college football. the The state of California has passed a new fair pay bill. Uh, it is at the desk of the governor as we as we record tonight. And what it is it is seeking to do is it is allowing college athletes to earn revenue and control their image and their likeness. So what this means is that um, the UCLA cannot and will not, this bill does not allow UCLA to pay its 
uh, student athletes, what it allows is for recruited athletes to earn money off their likeness. So if a car dealership, this is the article I read today, uh, wanted to hire um, uh, Lou Moore, uh, star, uh, what position? Uh, what sport are we talking about? I'm, pre- I'm pretty well aware on the athlete. What, what, oh, wow. Okay. What, what, uh, you pick know, your if best. It's, if it's basketball, you know, I'm a shooting guard. The shot, you saw the video of me shooting. Uh, the shot's money. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so so shooting guard uh, at UCLA uh, and the local car dealership wants to to hire him to cut a commercial, an advertisement. Uh, he would get paid for that. Uh, and under current NCAA rules, this is illegal and would make uh, Lou ineligible. But uh, under this law, this would allow for him to earn uh, what we think is fair pay. So whatever uh, the going rate is uh, for an advertisement or a person to be paid. Um, and this has gotten tremendous support from professional athletes, right? Uh, most notably, LeBron James has come out in support of this. I saw uh, Draymond Green tweet that he, you know, he believes that that athletes are finally going to get their fair share. Uh, and so we're talking about this is this has the potential to to really. Uh, we talk about disruption, right? That's this big kind of uh, tech word. Um, this has the ability to disrupt the entire NCAA. Um, and the and the NCAA came out, uh, I believe, today and said that this is yeah, unconstitutional. I, I don't know. I, I have no idea what part of the Constitution yeah. they're reading. Uh, <laughs> the 13th Amendment? I have no idea. <laughs> um, but I think this is the NCAA's reaction, this kind of overwhelming and kind of uh, overwrought reaction speaks to the kind of fundamental challenge that this law will do to, the in, to, to its collective. Because now, as you know, in college sports in particular, this becomes – and in an immediate advantage for all the schools playing all in California. Too, they all, a lot of them, it's a lot of money out there. Right. Right. And so if you want, and if you want to be the, you know, if you're Zion, let's use him since he's already, if you're Zion, there's no reason to go to Duke and play for coach K when you could go to UCLA and cut a commercial and someone pay you a million dollars for that commercial or set of commercials, and at the same time you play these games at UCLA, and you get on. You're still on the west. You're on the major television market. Your brand would still be higher. I think the NCAA has got to figure out. Well, you know, we could just cut California schools off out of the entire uh, the NCAA. But the truth is, and they know this, is that. Texas is going to want to get in on yes. this game too. So they will pass a law comparable. And then Florida's like, well, Texas can't do this. So we, and then pretty soon each state is going to allow um, these cascading kind of legal challenges to um, players controlling their likeness uh, is, is, is they can see that as the light. Right. At the end right. Of this and first of all, I got, a, I got a better name than Zion because, because this is going to come out in 2023 and that's Bronny James. Right. LeBron James uh, yeah. kid is positioned <laughs> to make a grip, even if it's for one year, right? Because he already has. Um, right. I mean, the, the, he just got on Instagram, but he by that time he'll have a million followers, right? And all of a sudden, he's cutting, he's cutting commercials, and he's probably cutting commercials from his dad's company or from wherever, right? Um, and I think you know him, mm-hmm. he's positioned. But <clears throat> what I what I what I think is interesting when you when you bring this up. The South, right? 
uh, how is mm-hmm. the South now going to react? Because look, we talked about that transition from HBCUs to integration, and these Southern schools who are in these states that spent the last 400 years exploiting black labor Mm -hmm. are now going to be put in this position. All they've ever done as states, and and I think this is accurate, is figure out ways to to keep black labor down, right? Whether you're talking about black codes, whether you're talking about the conflict lease system, whether you're talking about sharecropping, whatever, even to this day, lack of unionization, right? Now all of a sudden Mm -hmm. they're faced with, do we want to keep this tradition of football, right? Where we're winning, yes. where I can go to this game, right? Or do I want to make sure this young 18-year-old black kid is paid, right? Like this is, they're in this crazy dilemma. And I and I think part of them not wanting to pay the players this movement, not to want to play the players is because they don't want to give these young black kids money. Now all of a sudden they're faced with this reality do we give these kids money and a lot of money, right? Or mm-hmm. do we watch UCLA, USC dominate forever, right? And I, and I think you're right. Like mm-hmm. I think ultimately they're going to have to wrestle with this, but they're going to decide like, look, we want football. And that's only if the NCAA doesn't, doesn't win its cause, right? Like I think their first reaction is going to be let's – keep the money out of them. The second reaction is if we can't keep the money out, we're, we're in this, right? We're, we're getting in this and it's going to be crazy. And so as a, as a person, I'm from Kentucky, uh, as a player, a person from one of these, uh, um, college sports crazed, uh, states, the thing you have to understand is that, that, that in Kentucky and Alabama and South Carolina and Mississippi, that these college teams are the professional Mm. teams, right? That, that, um, you know, I say this all the time that Clemson had the first uh, in the at the in the in the the peak of the depression. They started a booster club for their football program, which is I pay ten dollars a year, right, right, as a way of supporting their athletic budget. They were the first college football program to raise a million dollars in a year as a booster right. program. So I I I fully suspect that um that in the state of Alabama whether there's a law or not they are going to compete in very real whether it's legal or illegal games and i think what we know what's also unsaid is that you know pay, players are not getting legally paid right oh yeah 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 they're getting something and it, I, yeah. I, I, and i want to be clear about because i think that what if we look at the the history of rules violations oh, yeah, they're getting stuff yeah. Whether it's SMU or whether it's Marcus Dupree, um, you know, whether it's the accusations surrounding uh, Cam Newton, that um, these Southern teams in particular are more than willing to pony up money uh, to to illegally pay players to get them on the team because they like winning. Right. And I think that's important for us uh, to do that. But what the California law does is it brings all that above board. Right. It makes it taxable. It makes, you know, people, it sets a market. <laughs> like it does all the kind of things that capitalism in theory is supposed to do. Um, and it allows the player to make kind of rational economic decisions if, if that's, a, if there's such a thing. Right. right um, right. and so I think that's a valuable, uh, to me, that's a valuable piece. Um, but we, you know, the South is not going to play second fiddle, in college football 
to California. No, 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 no. I mean, you used to have to, but not it won't. And you know what? You know, as we as we smoothly transition out of here, and we'll, you know, listeners, we'll do this a little bit more as I, I believe the governor of California has 30 days to make this decision. The NCA is already at, it, at his throat. Um, but you know, a good sponsor for one of these student athletes would be whatever watch Odell Beckham was wearing. It's cost so much, I don't even know the name <laughs> of it. Uh, <laughs> right, like that two hundred, right. three hundred fifty thousand dollars watch, and and the point I just bring that up because listeners, we have a show, um, marketing Mookie bets where we talked in baseball and we talked endorsements, and I and one of the first things I thought with Odell, besides like dang, like I can't even afford to to look at this watch, um, is just how <laughs> far the black athlete has come in endorsements, and not just like everyday endorsements, right? So if you get if there's this article in sport not sports illustrated but sport magazine from 1966 where it's two football players one of them is john henry uh was it john henry lloyd or something like that that's the baseball player but john henry uh something uh johnson and 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 he's and the other guy's last name is nesby and they're complaining as football players there's no off-season work right like we're not like the white players can get an opportunity we can't as jobs in the community, unless we're selling beer in our own community, and there's no endorsements, right? And this is 1966. Mm-hmm. Fast forward 53 years later, and it's not just endorsements that you know Beckham has right here. It's high-end endorsements. And this is like a new phenomenon where you see Black athletes, not just that OJ thing where he's able to do the Hertz commercial, but Black athletes endorsing something very high-end for a very specific niche market right and i think this is and i'm gonna leave this here before we because we're almost at the end of our time but i want to say this too uh uh, thinking about this this ability to to uh get endorsements and do endorsements is that lebron james last week introduced that um the glass helmet as a way of humanizing football players but on one level it humanizes them but on another it makes them far more marketable right right and I think that that's something that we have to keep our eye on uh, when we can't, when we think about athletes and endorsements because if 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 the helmet can pass uh, all the tests, then it will have an opportunity to really kind of change some of the dynamics right. of of the way we think about football players as human beings and as also as the way the NBA has been able to do is that they become the the talent. Yeah. And they be, they get to set their own terms. And that's going to change. And we got so much stuff to talk about football and talent and setting their own terms, especially if we do that rich ball stuff. We won't get into it today, but it's something another thing to keep your eye on. But I think just in general, let's say the glass helmets does it's it's a good metaphor as to like to look at the NFL and what it really hides, right? That very individualism. Um, that I think the history of black athletes in the NFL or the AFL is really to break out of that, right? And and mm-hmm. and NFL is no fun league, right? And black athletes have always had a way of expressing their joy um, and, and mm-hmm. celebrating and being individuals. And I think it's a step towards that, right? And I think sometimes the NFL struggles with that. Uh, they want the black talent, but they're not necessarily want that black joy sometimes. And, and I think that... Um, LeBron is really hitting at that right there. Um, and we'll see where, where that goes. Um, uh, I'm excited about it. Um, I would never wear a helmet like that. Uh, but yeah, we'll see where that goes. 
<laughs> exactly. But I think it's an interesting way of thinking about the future of of of, of football uh, and endorsements, both at the collegiate level with this new fair pay bill, as well as at the professional level, as as these professional athletes look to uh, you know solidify and grow their brands and give them more power and leverage versus vis a vis ownership. Right, right, right. And on that note, what do we say? We are, we are out. out. Peace. Peace.